Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. We're in a series on adversity, and one of the best chapters in the Bible to know when you're in adversity is Psalm 23, and I think we have that ready to go. So what I'd like for you to do is stand and let's read it in unison. Let's read together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever." Amen. Please be seated. Hopefully uh, today you'll get some additional information about or or be reminded of the life experience that helped David to write that. David was born in Bethlehem about 3,000 years ago. He grew up as a lowly shepherd. He had seven older brothers and an aging father, so the most ignoble chore fell to him which was to watch sheep. Nobody wanted to watch the sheep. It was considered kind of um, demeaning. Now, you've you've probably all seen pictures of of slings that throw rocks. It's a big leather thong that comes around like this, um, leather strap with a thing in the middle, and they swing it around, and then they let go of one half of it, and it throws a a rock. He also had a staff, which I don't think looked much at all like this. Um, This is plastic. But sometimes they would be crooked, but also sometimes they're just straight. They can be, a staff can be a very effective weapon for someone who knows how to use it well. And I'm sure that David spent hours and hours and hours slinging stones. And uh, while he was still a young man, he killed both a lion and a bear that they were, they were trying to kill his sheep. Now, for many young men, to be stuck watching a bunch of sheep would have felt like adversity probably did to him. To be occasionally attacked by a lion or a bear would have been adversity. But sitting around watching the sheep got him away from his older brothers who were pretty critical and probably gave him a chance to sing without being criticized. He becomes a poet. Uh, He writes many wonderful psalms like Psalm 23 that we just uh, read, one of the most popular ones. When I was in fifth grade, I memorized Psalm 23. So my entire life, Although David was born 3,000 years ago, my entire life he has been blessing me through Psalm 23. David spent a lot of time with God, and the Bible says that his heart was a heart like God's own heart. What does that mean? How many of you know the song, Lord, I want to be like Jesus in my heart? Okay, you're not going to raise your hands, are you? Okay, that's good. (laughs) To have a heart like God's own heart is to be like Jesus in your heart. It means that our attitudes are similar, our values are similar, that we really actually love people, we really love God, we, and we, we hate 
evil because it's a front to God's nature and it hurts the people we love. So David, he, he spent a lot of time with God. And that's part of how God rubs off on us, that we become more like Jesus by spending time with him, praying, serving alongside him, like when you guys went to Mexico, uh, doing things and, and just listening. So David has a heart like God's own heart. Now, meanwhile, David's growing up and the people have rejected God as their king. They've kind of fallen into the trap of looking at the nations around them and they say, they've all got kings, we want a king too. And so God gives them a king, he picks Saul for them. And Saul looks very kingly, he's very tall, and, um, but he presumes to know more than God and he a couple of times at least disobeys explicit commands from God, arguably probably to look good in front of the people. So God regrets making Saul king, and he sends the prophet Samuel to tell him, you've been rejected, you're not going to be king anymore, God's going to rip the kingdom out of your hand. Now that takes, that's pretty gutsy on the part of a prophet. In the Old Testament, there are prophets who go tell kings things and they get thrown into prison. Uh, But Samuel does that. Uh, He knows that it's it's even less wise not to tell somebody something if God has told you to tell them. And, you know, every Sunday I'm here and I'm trying to explain the truths of the Bible. And sometimes, like particularly last week, there are things that offend a lot of people in our culture, but I don't have a lot of choice. I have to sometimes go to those places because that's what God has told us in the Scripture. And all of you who are followers of Jesus, God expects you to be very uh, winsome and wise and gracious as you, not obnoxious, as you reach out to people who aren't yet followers of Jesus and be willing to be his ambassador. God has made me accountable to speak to you. He's made you accountable to speak to the people in your lives. Sometimes that brings persecution, which is another form of adversity. So without King Saul knowing, after telling him that God's going to rip the kingdom out of his hand, he goes to the uh, house of David's father. And there the seven older brothers are there and he sees the oldest one And he looks kingly. His name is Eliab. And Samuel's thinking, this must be the guy. But on screen, we'll put what actually happens. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. They have to bring David in from the pasture. Samuel anoints him with oil to be king of Israel in front of his brothers who are all older. The Holy Spirit has left King Saul and an evil spirit's tormenting him and he gets in these awful funks and uh, anger and depression and somebody says, why don't you try music? And they find out that David is really good on the lyre and so they send for him and he would come and play for Saul. Saul would cheer up and he loves David. Now David goes back and forth between the, the army, the Israeli army, the army of the Israelites musters and they're on one hill and then there's a valley and then the Philistines are on the other hill. And so they're all mustered there, thousands of them. And David kind of goes to take care of the sheep and comes back to visit his brothers who are there and so forth and so on and help with Saul. And there's this guy that's humongous. I'm going to give you an idea just so you can actually tell. This is about how tall Goliath was. Don't really get that impression, do you? Just reading it. Nine and a half feet. I measured this. Um, <laughs> and David is probably shorter than I am. Okay? So this would be a bit timida- intimidating because for 40 days, he would come out in the valley between the two armies and he would, he would 
yell at the Israelites that all of them were chicken and nobody would come out and fight him one-on-one. Would you come out and fight this guy one-on-one? And the, the, the king, he said, whoever beats him gets my daughter in marriage, gets a bunch of treasure. And they said, we're not going to do that. So they're all afraid. But David is arriving one day and he hears Goliath taunting the, the army of, of Israel and he lets it be known he'd be interested. And uh, even though he's quite young, doesn't have armors, King Saul said, well, lets him go. And um, he yells at Goliath that he is coming in the name of God and that God will give him, deliver him into his hand. He puts a stone in his sling. And modern tales notwithstanding, it's never considered to go up against a shield, armor, a spear, and a sword with a sling, okay? Um, you know, you scare off dogs and things with that, but he hits Goliath right in the forehead. God's with him. Goliath falls on his face, takes out Goliath's sword, and kills him. The Philistines run away. It's a great victory. And David starts being part of the army, and he has victory after victory. And so the women start singing about him and Saul, and they say, Saul, I don't know the tune, so I'll just tell you. Um, They say, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul just gets insanely jealous. And one or two times he takes a spear and tries to pin David to the wall. Apparently David's pretty fast. Um, But David barely escapes, goes into hiding. Now early on, we're not going to tell you all, but early on Saul gets word that David is hanging out with a bunch of, with Samuel the prophet and a bunch of prophets. And scholars think that there was probably kind of like a, a school of prophets. And they'd go and get mentored and worship together and so forth. And so Saul sends some soldiers to capture David. And when they get there, all of a sudden, they start prophesying. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but um, think about, have you ever been to a worship service where people fall down and can't move for a while? In this country, other countries, happens all the time. Uh, people call it being slain in the spirit. People who experience this, it's often in Pentecostal charismatic churches where it happens more, but people who experience it will um, tell, say their experience, they felt very peaceful. Maybe they uh, felt like God told them something encouraging, but they usually are kind of stuck there, can't really move around, kind of oblivious to what's going around them for, for some minutes. Um, the first bunch of soldiers comes and starts prophesying. It might have been something very similar to what, we, what people experience uh, today in terms of being slain in the spirit. So Saul sends another group of soldiers. Same thing happens to them. Sends a third group. Same thing happens to them. Finally, Saul himself comes and he, well, look what happens. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. The king and all of his men are with David, and they can't touch him. Now we're going to come back to that, but I I want you to remember this event for the rest of your life, because I haven't heard many people talk about it in churches. Remember for the rest of your life, the king and his men, they are right there with David and they can't touch him. David lives for years fleeing from Saul. Saul's chasing after him with an army, then goes back to war, then comes back and chases him. He's, he's living like camping in the wilderness and he's got probably several hundred men that are loyal to him or with him. Um, he had been given David's daughter, Michael, because he'd killed Goliath, but David but King Saul takes Michael away from him, gives him to another man. 
Um, David goes through much more adversity than most people face, and he goes through it for years. He's got an army chasing him, trying to kill him, narrowly escaping here and there. Now, everyone experiences adversity. Just think for a minute, what's the, what's the worst adversity you've ever experienced? Maybe you're going through it right now. Maybe you're in a good time right now. Much of the book of Psalms comes out of David's life experience of adversity. So when you're in adversity, and even when you're not, I highly recommend that you read the book of Psalms over and over and memorize Psalm 23 or other Psalms. One time, Saul goes into a cave by himself to relieve himself. And it just so happens that David and some of his men are hiding in that very cave. And the men urge David to kill Saul, but he says, I won't. I won't touch God's anointed. But he does go up and cuts off a piece of his clothing. And when Saul goes out, he comes out of the cave and says, Yoo-hoo, could have killed you, didn't. I'm loyal. Why are you, why don't you, why are you leave me alone? And Saul regrets it and, and so forth. But he comes right back after David soon after that. Um, another time, God causes Saul and his army to sleep soundly. David and a couple guys, they sneak into where Saul's sleeping. They take his spear and his water jug. And then when they wake up the next morning, they from a distance say, Yoo-hoo, we could have killed you. We're loyal. But he knows that Saul's just going to keep on coming after him, even though Saul each time says, oh, you're right. I shouldn't be doing this. But he's just very, very jealous. So David decides he's going to go be a mercenary in a nearby country. And he goes away. Um, he, win, he has hundreds of men following him. They win lots of battles. Uh, finally, he receives word that King Saul has been killed in battle. David is anointed king in the southern tribe of Judah. But the northern tribes don't recognize him. A civil war ensues. And eventually, David becomes king of all of Israel. And this map shows kind of where David expanded the territory of Israel too, all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba, up past Damascus. He was a very, very successful king in terms of his, his military campaigns, and there was a lot of trade and, and prosperity. And one of the things that, just to always keep in mind, is where David started and where David ended up. And it doesn't matter who you are in high school or who you are at whatever age, God is that powerful. He takes this lowly shepherd and makes him king and conquering. And, and God can do that because God's that powerful. So David's prospering, been king for a while. And one night he's walking on his terrace around the palace and he sees a beautiful woman on a nearby roof and she is bathing. Pretty suspicious. Her name is Bathsheba. He sends for her even though she's married to a man named Uriah who is off fighting David's battles for him. She comes willingly, they sleep together. Some weeks later, she sends word that she's pregnant. David brings Uriah home. He hopes that he will sleep with his wife and think that it's his child. He doesn't. So David sends back word to the general to put Uriah in the front of the battle and then withdraw. So it's effectively murder by proxy. David then brings Bathsheba into the palace as one of his uh, wives. The baby's born. And David apparently thinks he's craftily avoided a scandal. But God knows. God sends the prophet Nathan who comes and confronts David. David repents and he writes Psalm 51 which is one of the most beautiful psalms in the whole Bible. It's a psalm of contrition. But David's sin has consequences for many. The baby dies. A sword never departs from David's house. There's civil wars going to come. More people are going to die. David is betrayed by his son Absalom 
who mounts a rebellion. David has to flee again into the wilderness, once again in adversity, wondering if he's going to live or die by his son's own hand. Eventually, uh, the tables turn. Absalom is riding along, and his hair gets, is long, and it's flying around. It gets caught in a tree, and he's hanging there, and David's general comes along and kills him. Um, and David is restored. But later, another son tries to seize the throne, and David just barely makes it so that Solomon can be his heir. And then David dies at 70. How could God say that David was a man after God's own heart? He committed adultery and murder. Now, before we go on and experience a few more things about what we can learn from David in terms of adversity and perseverance, I just want to review what happens in someone's life when they become a follower of Jesus. And what I find very helpful always is to go back to Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed. So Jesus says there's a sower who throws seed on the ground. Some lands on the path what's beaten down path and the birds come and gobble it up. Some lands on thin soil with rock underneath and doesn't put down roots, grows up, but the sun comes out and it withers. Some lands among thorns, the thorns grow up and choke it. And some lands on good soil and it gives a lot of fruit. Jesus explains the parable to his um, disciples and he says that the seed is the word of the kingdom. We could just call it the gospel. And that the, uh, it's the good news that everybody is invited into God's family and to his kingdom. The path represents people who hear God's word and it just doesn't even faze them. They just, they just don't even understand. Jesus says that Satan snatches that word away and that's very scary. How would you know if you're the path? One, one may, way might be if you think you don't really need God's forgiveness. You think, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm good enough. That would mean you're really not hearing the gospel and what God is saying. So beware. And if you think there's any possibility that you're the path, that you're just continuing on and not even phased by what God's word says, pray, ask God to show you. This um, diagram I like to use, and the triangle represents the triune God, the pitchfork, Satan, and this represents the path who hears the word but doesn't even fail him, just keeps right on going in the direction that Satan would like for the path to go. Uh, the second diagram is of the stony ground, in which Jesus says these are people who hear the word, they kind of like it, they begin to follow, see it does that uptick. But then per, it's, he says that persecution, temptation, or tribulation come. And tribulation is adversity. That's what we're talking about in this series. And that inflection point at the top, they fall away. They weren't really ready for that adversity. And so they go. They think, this is too hard. I didn't sign up for this. How could a good God allow something like this to happen to me or to somebody that I love? And their faith withers and they head back in the other direction. The same sun that causes the plant with the shallow roots to wither causes the plant with deep roots to flourish. Plants need the sun. Do you know what happens in my backyard if I just take a hoe and cut off a, a weed? Generally, it puts the roots down deeper and comes back stronger. Makes it even harder. Um... If you were told that following Jesus would be easy, somebody was not telling you what the Bible says. If 
For example, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, part of my job is to prepare you for adversity. And the first thing is you need to expect adversity. And the second thing is you need to put down deep roots. How do you put down deep roots? Well, like David, you spend time with God and he rubs off on you. You, you, you study what he's told you in, in the scriptures and you, you understand and you learn and you, you serve alongside him and you trust him with your life and your health and your job and your family, your time, everything. You, you pray, you see him do, do miracles and you come to realize like Samuel, he doesn't dare not tell David what he's been told to tell him. God's much more powerful than any king. And you become a faithful ambassador. So the second soil is all about perseverance in the face of adversity. And we persevere by putting down roots. Now, Jesus says that the third soil, the thorny ground, is choked out by thorns. So it it starts going the right direction, but then gradually comes out. And he says that the thorns are are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. These are probably people who would say they believe in Jesus. Remember in in recent Sundays I've mentioned to you there's a high percentage of people in this country that say, yeah, I made a commitment to Jesus and it's still important in my life. But they're headed in Satan's direction and they're not bearing fruit. You know, I know a lot of people who remind me of the first soil and just don't even understand. They think they might understand what Christianity is, but they... I I rarely run into people that actually do. It's just kind of kept going the direction they were already heading. And I know lots of people who remind me of the second soil who they just weren't ready for adversity and something awful happened, just blew them out of the water and they, they just didn't understand how a good God could allow something so painful to happen in their lives. But consider the third soil for a minute. In your experience, between the second soil, the thin soil, not much roots and blown away by adversity, and the third soil being the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. In the American church today among churchgoers, which of those soils do you think is more prevalent? In the relatively safe and enormously prosperous society that we live in, I think more churchgoers are made ineffective because of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. That's just my opinion. Just our prosperity gives us so many options and we think that spending our all, almost all of our time and all of our money on our options and ourselves and our family is what's gonna fulfill us and it's not what makes us more like Jesus. It's not what fulfills us and God's probably scratching his head in heaven going, why don't they get it? Jesus says the good soil, the fourth one, it produces fruit with perseverance. It's not just a straight shot. It has to persevere. It says in Proverbs, the righteous man falls seven times, yet rises again. The idea is not that you become a follower of Jesus and you never again need to repent of anything. We all fail. But we don't continue on in some blatant, obvious sin that God has said, you're not supposed to do that. And even ones that aren't so blatant that he says, don't do that. We repent. We follow. It says, 
Uh, we, we talked about that last week, how it says in 1 John that the Holy Spirit remains in us and doesn't let us keep going. Romans 6, Paul talks about how we are in a process called sanctification, becoming holy. It just means we're becoming more and more like Jesus. So a graph of our hearts looks more like this over time. And this brings us back to David. See, David was a man after God's own heart. That does not mean he did not sin horribly and heinously. He took a nosedive at one point and was there for some time till Nathan confronted him. But at that point, he repented and he came back and had a heart after God's own heart. And, this is impo- and, he, be- and he becomes a major contributor to the Bible. Never come to the place where you see yourself so highly that you no longer fit into this diagram. But you tell yourself things like, you know, my sins are pretty normal and God understands, but their sins are really awful. Instead, we have to train our hearts to actually feel it's true they commit a particular sin that I don't struggle with, but you know, after all that God has invested in me and the grace in me and forgiven and loved on me, I still do this and this and I struggle with some other sin. I think that understanding the parable of the sower and the seed gives us a good handle on what we see going on around us in people's souls. Well, now let's look at David and some final thoughts about how he handled adversity and what we can learn from him. What have we seen so far? First of all, David had a lot of experience with adversity, and out of his experience came many of the Psalms. Adversity molded him. Uh, He becomes the most famous king in Israel's history. His Psalms continue to bless us. Now, adversity, in David's case, is unjustly inflicted upon him by the most powerful man in his country, by the king. It's the government that's after him. Now, I've lived in another country for many years, and compared to all the countries in the history of the world, we live in one that the rule of law is very important, and that's really good, and we really try to be just and fair, but it doesn't always happen. There are people I know in this congregation been very unfairly treated by, by the government or government representatives, um, and that's been some of the most difficult adversity that they've gone through. It may become more prevalent in the future. I, I may get arrested someday for some of the things just explaining what the Bible says. In the Bible, many people experience adversity at the hands of their government. Peter, Paul, Daniel, David, Jesus. But we have something a little different than they had. Our problem is we expect things to be fair and just. And so when they're not, the devil has a lot of extra ammunition to really knock us for a bigger loop, to undermine our trust in God, because we really have grown up thinking, yeah, it's all going to be fair and just. It's not. It's much more fair and just than probably any big country in the history of the world. But we need to be prepared for adversity even when it comes unjustly from the government. Now, this is a democracy, so it's our responsibility to vote and to try hard to make things just, but it still will be imperfect. Another thing um, that I was thinking of this week is I, I grew up trusting the news. Walter Cronkite said it, and that was the truth. And um, today, whether you're on the right or the left, 
uh, people on both sides are, are just experiencing adversity because mo both the right and the left, they're now trained to just give you sound bites, not give you the whole story. Just do something to provoke outrage, whichever opinion you're of, so that you'll tune back in. So when we see people being clobbered by the media, we don't want to jump to conclusions, right or left, and we, we want to pray for them. Last week we looked at how sometimes we experience adversity because God is disciplining us for blatant, obvious sins and we need to repent and follow Jesus. What are our takeaways today? First, expect adversity. Again, Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So we need to adjust our expectations. It may come unjustly from the government, it may come from social media, it may come from the regular media. David's most painful adversity, which was it? Being chased around the wilderness by his son who was trying to supplant him and kill him. Secondly, remember that God wastes nothing. We, we went a few weeks ago at, to look at James, count it all joy, my brethren. When you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. David was molded by his adversity. The boring years watching sheep probably helped to make him a poet. It was punctuated by terrifying attacks by lions and bears, but he took them on. He was persecuted for years by King Saul. It all made him sink his roots deeper into his relationship with God. So put down deep roots. Remember, all plants need sun. The same sun that causes the plant with shallow roots to wither causes the plant with deep roots to flourish. God wastes nothing. Remember, memorize, we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Have that locked in solid. Get Psalm 23 down. If you love God, then God turns the tables on evil and does, makes good things happen in your life because of them. And then thirdly, God can protect you and rescue you in any, any and every situation. And this is one of the things I, I was saying to you. I want you to remember that event that happened in David's life for the rest of your life. I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it, and I think it's just a wonderful one. David, his goose is cooked. He's, he's done. The soldiers are there. They're going to they're gonna capture him and take him away. And God goes, no, you're not. Stops them in their tracks. A second group comes and God goes, no, you're not. Stops them in their tracks. A third group, finally Saul. God is able at any moment to protect you in any circumstance. And he does it right there with David. Remember that your entire life. Remember that Jesus, when Pilate is questioning him, he says, I could call legions of angels to protect me right now. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for his children and he can send them now. And he gives us the privilege of instead of being rescued every time like a helicopter parent, he gives us the privilege of actually joining him in his suffering. And we will be grateful for that for all eternity. But he knows what he's doing and his arm is not short and he can always prevent or rescue you from anything. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he suffered about as much as anybody. His back, if we'd seen him, 
we had pictures of his body, it'd probably be just scars all over and even his face from not just being flogged numerous times, but also hit with rocks and sticks and uh, just really tough. And, but he keeps going to city after city and often he's, he's treated unjustly by the government. And he gets to the city of Philippi and there's this girl who's a slave who's possessed by a, a demon and that demon tells people, prophesies for people. And so the owners of the slave, they make a lot of money off this girl. But she starts following Paul around and just gets really irritating, constantly saying, she's not saying bad, she's saying, this is a, a servant of the Most High God, servant of the Most High God. Finally, Paul gets irritated, he turns around and says, get out of her, just cast the demon out. And now her owners are really ticked because they can't make any money off her anymore. And Paul ends up getting flogged and thrown into prison, put in stocks, very painful bleeding body in the dust. And around midnight, he and Silas are singing praises to God in the midst of their adversity. And there's an earthquake and the doors of the prison open and their shackles fall off. And the Philippian jailer, about to take his life, Paul says, don't, we're all here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And God uses the adversity of Paul to save the entire Philippian jailer's family. You never know what God's going to do in adversity. You know that he wants you to persevere. You know that the same sun that causes the shallow roots to wither causes the deep roots to, to flourish and grow. But sometimes that flourishing are the people that are watching you, like the Philippian jailer. So trust God. His arm is not short. And if you're going through adversity right now, get people together around you. Would you join me in prayer? Would the band come on up? And before we pray, actually, I want to—we're doing something a little different today. Um, and I'd like to encourage you. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a couple of songs. And there's going to be Luke and Lalia back by that prayer wreath, and Rob and Cisco over by this prayer wreath. And just from everything I'm hearing, I am pretty sure that there are a number of you that are going. You guys can go ahead and go on over there. Um, number of you that are really involved in um, adversity right now. And you could use some prayer. And we would really like to develop more the habit of just feel free to, st we're going to stand up, we're going to be singing, and just go have someone pray, go have them pray for you in either of those two stations. Let's, let's pray together before we sing. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are so active in our lives and in this room now, we pray that you would speak to each heart, that if someone is, is the path and they're beginning to realize that, that you would, um, you would break through. That if someone's good soil, but they just need someone to pray with them and, and hold them up, that that would happen. If someone comes to the conclusion that they've been deceived by their prosperity, would you please pour your spirit into them and help them to turn that around. And if anyone's angry at you, Lord, for past adversity, would you, or current adversity, would you draw them to yourself now? Speak to them. Give them all the resources they need. Fill us with your spirit. We know, Lord, that um, your voice is the most important one in here. So help us to hear you now and as we sing to sense what you want us to do and to take that seriously. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. I want to remind you, if you're a woman, that you can sign up for the Women's Retreat. You can also sign up this week online. Bring a friend. It should be fabulous, so I hope you'll do that. Um, and there's still, you can still be prayed for if you'd like to be up here at the front. Um, would you receive God's Spirit? Be filled with the Holy Spirit that you may have all the roots you need to persevere in the midst of adversity, whether you're in it or whether you will be in the future. May you be walking closely with God and have a heart after His heart, becoming more like Jesus every day, that you will be well prepared to hang with Him when things get tough. God bless you. Be filled with the Spirit. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.